Happy New Year and welcome to the January Dermalogic Surgery Podcast and Beyond the Digest Supplemental Podcast. I am the podcast editor, Naomi Lawrence. In this month's journal, there's a systematic review and meta-analysis in which the authors show that adjuvant radiation does not improve outcomes in basal cell carcinoma with perineural invasion. There are also a number of good reconstructive conundrums. In Beyond the Digest, there's an excellent article on optimizing treatment approaches for patients with cutaneous melanoma by integrating clinical and pathologic features with the 31 gene expression profile test. This article highlights the important role that gene expression profiling can have in identifying those low-risk patients which may have an adverse outcome. Thank you for listening and have a happy surgery day. This segment of the episode features surgical oncology and reconstructive article reviews. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, Surgery Alone, without adjuvant radiation, adequately treats histologic perineural basal cell carcinomas, a systematic review with meta-analysis. First author, Mark Ash, senior author, Rajat Varma. In this article, authors reviewed and analyzed treatment outcomes of basal cell carcinoma with histologic perineural invasion treated with curative surgical intent. Perineural invasion can be an isolated histologic finding, also known as histologic or incidental perineural invasion, or associated with pain, anesthesia, paresthesias, weakness, or imaging findings, termed clinical perineural invasion. Guidelines indicate that if clinical, extensive, or large nerve perineural basal cell is suspected, MRI and adjuvant radiation should be considered in addition to complete margin control with surgery because of the potential for worse outcomes. In contrast, the management of tumors with solely histologic perineural invasion remains unclear. To address this, authors searched related articles in PubMed, Embase, and Cochrane Reviews through June of 2021, and 13 eligible cohort studies were meta-analyzed, all of which were cohort studies, a majority of which were retrospective in nature. 713 perineural basal cell carcinoma cases were included. 63% were treated with Mohs, 4% with wide local excision, 7% with Mohs with radiation, and 25% with wide local excision plus radiation. 30% lacked surgical modality specification, either Mohs or wide local excision, beyond indicating surgery alone was performed. In the author's meta-analysis of histologic perineural basal cell carcinoma, The pooled results revealed a very low rate of overall recurrence at 3%, excellent overall local control, 97%, and low cancer-specific mortality, only two deaths or 0.4% of cases with survival data, which argues against the clinical relevance of histologic perineural basal cell carcinoma. Surgery and surgery plus adjuvant radiation did not differ in recurrence or cancer-specific survival. Some limitations of the study are important to consider. No randomized control trials were found, 
Outcome data were lacking in 41% of the surgery alone group compared with 4% of the surgery and radiation group. Thus, 95% of the total missing outcomes were present in the surgery alone group. Finally, given that histologic perineural invasion was assumed in about 50% of cases, it's possible that the review included cases of clinical perineural invasion. However, this would serve to strengthen the conclusions of the article, which would indicate that despite inclusion of higher risk lesions, high levels of control and disease-specific survival are still achieved. To summarize, overall local control and cancer-specific survival were high at a medium five-year follow-up for surgery alone and surgery plus radiation. Surgery alone and surgery plus radiation demonstrated statistically equivalent outcomes, and given the lack of improved outcomes with radiation, the risks associated seem not to be justified, and thus the authors do not recommend adjuvant radiation therapy for solely histologic perineural basal cell carcinoma if clear surgical margins are achieved. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original investigation. Local recurrence rates of extramammary Paget disease are lower after Mohs micrographic surgery compared with wide local excision. A systematic review and meta-analysis by first author Grace Kim and senior author Jerry Brewer. Extramammary Paget's disease is a rare, slow-growing neoplasm that presents most commonly in the anogenital region of older males and females. Over the years, Mohs micrographic surgery has emerged as a promising therapy for EMPD as it allows for complete microscopic margin control and as a result, increased chances of surgical clearance. The authors of this article performed a systematic review to analyze the difference in local recurrence rates of EMPD in patients treated with wide local excision versus Mohs surgery. A literature search was conducted from multiple databases, including Medline, Embase, Central, and Scopus. 27 studies met the inclusion criteria. Patients had a 2.67 times higher chance of local recurrence after wide local excision than Mohs. Meta-analysis of single-arm studies revealed a 7.3% local recurrence rate after Mohs versus a 26.3% recurrence rate after wide local excision. This difference was statistically significant. After excluding recurrent tumors, the odds ratio for recurrence in wide local excision versus Mohs was 2.3. In the double-arm studies, for all tumors including recurrent extramammary Paget's disease, the odds of recurrence was 2.67 times higher after treatment with wide local excision compared with Mohs. Most articles did not specify whether CK7 immunostaining was used for Mohs surgery. Overall, Mohs micrographic surgery has a statistically and clinically significant lower rate of recurrence compared with wide local excision based on this systematic review and meta-analysis. Therefore, Mohs surgery should be strongly considered in patients with extramammary Paget's disease. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the original article, Clinical Characteristics of Basal Cell Carcinomas of the Vulva, an Institutional Retrospective Review by authors Genevieve Munoz and Lauren Council. Vulvar BCCs are rare and represent less than 1% of all BCCs, and the exact etiology is unknown given that the vulva is a sun-protected site. Surgical treatment options include vulvectomy, wide local excision, Mohs, or EDNC, although reported recurrence rates can be high, as high as up to 20%. This was a retrospective review of 35 vulvar BCC cases at the author's institution within an 18-year period. 
80% of cases involved the cutaneous vulva, 17% involved the suprapubic skin, and 3% one case involved the clitoris. All but one of the cases occurred in immunocompetent patients, which is a contrast with prior studies that suggested a higher proportion of vulvar BCCs occur in immunocompromised patients. The average age in this study was 70, which is in line with prior literature suggesting that this tumor is more common in the elderly. The majority of cases were treated by wide local excision, 46%, or vulvectomy, 37%. Gynecology performed all of the vulvectomies and a majority of the wide local excisions. 11% of the cases were treated with MOS and two cases were treated with EDNC. All MOS and EDNCs were performed by dermatologists. The mean margin was 6 millimeters for vulvectomy, 4.4 millimeters for wide local excision, and 3 millimeters for MOS. Although follow-up data was limited, there was no disease-specific mortality and no reported tumor recurrence at one year. Overall, this study was not designed to compare outcomes with these various surgical procedures. However, the fact that only a few of the cases in the series were treated with MOS, which offers both complete margin assessment and tissue-sparing technique, suggests that there is room for increased education and collaboration among gynecology and dermatology so that we can offer patients the best treatment for rare vulvar BCCs. This is Christy Regula reviewing publication productivity using H-Index to evaluate academic success among fellowship-trained MOS surgeons by first author Tyler Marion and senior author Silish Kanda. The H-Index is a measure of research achievement that reflects the number of publications that an individual has, as well as the impact of these publications. The impact is determined by taking into account the number of times the publication has been cited. This study calculated the H-Index of most surgeons in the United States among private and academic practices. Most surgeons were identified through the ACMS membership directory, and their demographic information was taken from publicly available data. 1,150 ACMS members were included in the study and their H indices were calculated. The H index differed significantly based on practice setting. The mean H index for non-academic practice settings was 5.2, 11.1 for academic, and 20.3 for combination of academic slash non-academic. For those in academics, the H index increased with higher rank. 5 for clinical instructor, 8.64 for assistant professor, 10.6 for associate professor, and 23.9 for professor. The H index also differed based on fellowship completion year with those graduating more recently having a lower H index. The author suggests that H indices may be used to guide decisions regarding adequacy of scholarly productivity for promotion. The commentary that followed the article agreed that the reference range established for the H-index among most surgeons may be a helpful tool in comparing academic productivity. They note that protected academic time in academic and private practices may help promote academic productivity. They also cite the higher H-index for MD-PhD graduates, 9.9 compared to 6.3 for MDs. The authors do point out several limitations to the H-index, including no consideration for first or senior authorship, inability to capture single but frequently cited publications, lack of normalization for career length, and difficulty comparing across fields. 
Overall, the H index can be a useful tool in comparing academic productivity. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, repair of a defect involving the nasal sidewall, nasal ala, alar sulcus, and medial cheek by first author Jessalyn Tate and senior author Rajiv Najawan. The authors described the repair of a 2.5 by 3 centimeter defect involving the nasal sidewall, nasal ala, alar sulcus, and medial cheek following three stages of Mohs surgery for a basal cell carcinoma. The defect did not extend to the alar rim. The patient had recently undergone Mohs surgery for three other skin cancers on the right cheek, nasal tip, and left zygoma. Because of the patient's age and numerous recent surgeries, he declined a multi-stage or delayed repair and therefore opted for a single-stage reconstruction. A cheek advancement flap was designed to repair the medial cheek portion of the defect up to the nasofacial sulcus. The inferior redundancy from the cheek advancement flap was then used as a V to Y transposition flap to repair the entire nasal sidewall aspect of the defect up to the alar sulcus. The size of the pedicle was approximately one half of the size of the flap to allow for increased movement without compromising vascular supply because of the robust, mu robust muscular pedicle of the melolabial fold. The flap was rotated superior medially at 180 degrees and subsequently transposed into the nasal sidewall portion of the primary defect and secured with both periosteal tacking and buried vertical masters sutures. Owing to the overall shallow nature of the alar aspect of the defect, this area was allowed to heal by second intention. The outcome at six-month follow-up can be seen in figure four of the article. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, repair of an extensive defect of the left central cheek by authors Kwok Bao Nguyen and Jigar Patel. The defect is a 4.7 by 4.3 centimeter defect on the left central cheek after staged MIS excision. A linear closure would have had tension and pull on the oral commissure and millilabial fold. The authors opted for a cervicofacial rotation flap with a retroauricular transposed lobe. The additional retroauricular lobe was designed in order to increase tissue mobilization given the limited distance between the lateral defect and the anterior border of the ear. This case is a good reminder that additional lobes can be added when a simpler flap repair lacks enough mobility or would be under too much tension. This is Christy Rugula reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, repair of combination nasal sidewall and paranasal cheek defects by first author Tyler Bauman and senior author Scott Nelter. This is the case of a 69-year-old woman with a basal cell carcinoma of the right mid-nasal sidewall. The tumor was cleared with two stages of Mohs and the defect size was 1.5 by 1.4 centimeters, spanning the nasal sidewall and paranasal cheek. Maintaining the cosmetic junction between the cheek and nose presents a reconstructive challenge in this case. The authors describe the use of a novel transposition flap for repair of this type of defect and have coined the flap the Island Pedicle Transposition Advancement Flap, or IPTAP. A crestenteric myocutaneous flap is designed inferior to the defect and will be transposed onto the nasal sidewall portion of the defect. This flap is designed to include the metalabial fold medially, and the crescenteric portion extends onto the medial cheek. The crescent is incised, and a superior-based muscular pedicle flap is created. The flap is then advanced and rotated 180 degrees clockwise to fill the nasal sidewall defect. The secondary defect is closed along the nasofacial sulcus, 
and a Burroughs triangle is removed at the superior aspect of the primary defect. This flap is best suited for small to medium-sized defects and allows for demarcation of the cosmetic subunits, as well as a good texture match for the nasal skin. And please see the article for more detailed drawings of this flap. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, reconstruction of a full thickness lip defect. First author, Shoshana Blumenthal, senior author, Ian Marr. A 59-year-old woman presented with a recurrent squamous cell carcinoma on the left lateral lower vermilion lip adjacent to a site of prior Mohs, which had been previously closed with a lip wedge. The resulting full thickness defect measured 1.4 by 0.8 centimeters involving the left lateral lower lip abutting the left oral commissure and with exposure of orbicularis muscle. The ideal tissue reservoir for the reconstruction of the lower lip, in this case, was the ipsilateral upper lip. In addition to its similar aesthetic properties, it also allowed for the transfer of functional orbicularis muscle, ensuring maintenance of the oral sphincter competence. The Abbe flap, a lip switch interpolation flap, can import skin, muscle, and mucosa to reestablish oral competence for large full thickness defects. However, this is a two-stage procedure that involves partial closure of the oral commissure during a three to four week period. Ultimately, authors chose to utilize the S. Lander flap, a single stage cross-lip flap to reconstruct the defect. The flap is designed similarly to a full thickness wedge resection, with a medially based pedicle of mucosa and or orbicularis containing the superior labial artery. In this case, the flap was elevated and rotated laterally and inferiorly into the lower lip defect, where it was secured with buried foral monocryl sutures in a layered fashion, ensuring that muscle was sutured to muscle and dermis to dermis. Care was taken to approximate the vermilion border of the flap with that of the medial aspect of the defect. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the reconstructive conundrum repair of a lower eyelid defect by Dr. Yu and Dr. Bordeaux. The authors present a case of a 61-year-old woman with a melanoma in situ on the left lower eyelid cleared in one stage. The final defect measured 4.2 by 3.5 centimeters abutting the lower eyelid margin and involved the anterior lamella. Reconstruction of the anterior lamella can be challenging due to risk of ectropion and functional compromise. In addition, it's important to respect the cosmetic transition between the thinner eyelid skin and the thicker cheek skin at the lower orbital rim. The usual reconstruction options include advancement flaps from the cheek, rotational flaps from the temple, interpolated flap from the forehead, or a full thickness skin graft from the upper eyelid, or a combination approach involving multiple of these flaps. In this case, the authors decided on a combination approach. They utilized a modified tripair flap to repair the lid margin, followed by a V to Y advancement flap to repair the remainder of the defect. The tripair flap is a transposition flap that utilizes redundant tissue on the upper eyelid to repair defects of the lateral inferior eyelid. To design the flap, the authors first marked out the existing upper eyelid crease. This crease was extended to the lateral canthus laterally and to a point directly above the punctum medially. The vertical height of the primary defect was, was measured and a second line was drawn superior to the upper lid crease to match the height of the primary defect. It is imperative to make sure there is adequate tissue reservoir on the upper eyelid prior to proceeding with this flap. Accounting for pivotal restraint, the modified tripared flap was cut slightly longer and wider than the lower lid defect. 
Once the transposition flap was draped into place, the remainder of the flap was repaired with an inferiorly based V to Y advancement flap. The V to Y flap was not sutured to the inferior border of the tripair flap. Instead, it was um, tacked down to the inferior orbital rim. This served two purposes, including restoring the natural cosmetic boundary between the eyelid and the cheek and preventing any tension from the advancement flap from being transferred to the lower lid margin. The patient was satisfied with the cosmetic outcome and there was no complications at six months post-op. I think this is a very interesting repair. I find myself leaning towards a large mustardia rotation for similar defects, but the weight of the flap, even in combination with lateral canthopexy, does run the risk of an ectropion. And I will certainly consider the tripair flap for a large defect that is limited to the anterior lamella in the future. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, reconstruction of a large upper paramedian forehead defect by first author Brett Neal and senior author Thomas Hawker. The authors described the repair of a 4 by 3.6 centimeter defect on the central upper forehead following most surgery for a large basal cell carcinoma. The authors performed a paramedium pendulum flap to reconstruct the defect. There are two supplemental videos available depicting the creation of this flap, and I refer the listeners to the article and these videos for surgical technique details. Outcome at three months can be seen in figure four of the article. This is Christy Regula reviewing the communication. Reminder phone calls increase total body skin exam compliance following most surgery in the VA population. A single center study by first author George Sakem and senior author John Zampala. This study looked to determine the effect of reminder calls on compliance for skin exams after skin cancer treatment in the VA population. During a five-month period, all patients who received excision or Mohs surgery for a skin cancer at the Manhattan VA were identified. The recommended date for their follow-up skin exam was extracted from the EHR. Patients were called by a resident physician three to six weeks before this recommended date to remind them of their appointment and confirm that an order for their visit was placed in the EHR. The compliance of these patients was recorded and then compared to the compliance of a retrospective control group that did not receive any reminder call. Patients in the intervention group had a higher rate of presentation for total body skin exam at the recommended interval than did the controls, and this approached statistical significance. There was a statistically significant increased rate of presentation after reminder phone calls in patients undergoing most surgery, 77% versus 41% in those that were not called. This article cites several reasons why most patients may be susceptible to delays in total body skin exams, including hesitancy of undergoing additional involved surgeries or prolonged wound healing, increased pain related to procedures and suture removals in more sensitive anatomic locations, and fatigue from visit frequency around the time of Mohs. Additional larger studies are needed to determine the effectiveness of this practice outside of the VA population, but it is a potential way to increase compliance in your practice. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication Epidemiology and Survival of Ecrine Porocarcinoma by Sex in the United States, a Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results Database Analysis. First author, Sarah Raji, senior author, Baba Rao. Ecrine porocarcinoma is a rare cutaneous malignancy that accounts for up to 0.01% of all malignant cutaneous neoplasms. 
Authors analyzed 744 cases of equine porocarcinoma in the SEER database from the year 2000 to 2018, a database which encompasses 34% of the United States population. Most women presented at the age of 85 years or older, whereas men were more likely to present at a, between age 80 and 84. Skin of the lower limb and hip area was the most common location for women, and skin of the head and neck was most common in men. In both genders, the highest ecrine porocarcinoma rates were observed in non-Hispanic white patients. Ecrine porocarcinoma diagnosis rates increased in a near-linear fashion with household income. Survival rates at 1, 3, and 5 years demonstrated no significant difference between genders. However, among all participants, the observed three-year relative survival rate of 94% differs from past studies, which demonstrated a lower three-year survival rate of around 70%. Rates of site-specific surgery, regional lymph node surveillance, and disease-specific death were similar in both genders. In women, a greater proportion of ecrine pore carcinoma cases were localized at 74% compared to men at 62%. Overall, most of the total ecrine porocarcinoma cases were localized at 67%, whereas only 4% of cases spread to regional lymph nodes and only 1% of cases to distant lymph nodes. These values disagree with prior studies, indicating that 20% of patients experienced regional lymph node metastasis and 10% experienced distant metastasis. This highlights the potentially more indolent nature of ecrine porocarcinoma, or perhaps a greater delay to metastasis than that what was previously reported. Finally, authors found that the incidence of ecrine porocarcinoma may be increasing. In the 35-year period from 1973 to 2008, only 203 porocarcinoma cases were identified in the SEER database, whereas Authors identified 744 cases in the 18-year period from the year 2000 to 2018. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication, Surgeon Perspective on Medicaid Participation for Mohs Micrographic Surgery, a nationwide survey of the workforce. First author, Eric Biltrami, senior author, Hao Fang. Online surveys were sent to all physicians who billed more than 10 Mohs procedures based on the 2017 Medicare Provider Utilization Data and the Mohs Fellowship graduates from 2017 to 2020. Respondents included 272 Mohs surgeons. Medicaid acceptance was reported by 145, or 53% of respondents. 72% of all respondents are not mandated to accept Medicaid by their workplace, whereas 52% of respondents accepting Medicaid are mandated by their workplace to do so. Those accepting Medicaid reported an average of 12% of their patients which were insured by Medicaid. Most respondents were in strong agreement that Medicaid reimbursement is insufficient compared with Medicare and private insurance. Based on free text submissions, respondents accepting Medicaid felt a moral obligation to serve the Medicaid population whereas those not accepting Medicaid cited reimbursement and administrative barriers limiting participation. Midwestern practices and academic hospitals are more likely to have workplace-mandated Medicaid acceptance, whereas Southern and group private practices are most likely to have workplace-mandated non-acceptance. 
Respondents reported claim denial, delayed reimbursement, prior authorization, and increased paperwork for the staff as a specific administrative concerns deterring Medicaid acceptance. This is Eric Kalebit reviewing the communication post-operative complications in chronic lymphocytic leukemia patients undergoing Mohs surgery, increased risk of bleeding-related complications from ibrutinib by authors Kelly Hiratsu and Brian Jang. The authors provide the background that ibrutinib is a brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitor that is associated with increased bleeding risk. This study is a retrospective review of CLL patients undergoing Mohs surgery to evaluate whether CLL patients on ibrutinib are at increased risk of bleeding adverse events. There were 362 Mohs cases in patients with CLL included in the analysis. Patients on ibrutinib had a 30% incidence of bleeding-related complications, compared to a 13% incidence in patients on anticoagulants. This did not meet statistical significance, likely due to small sample size. There were no bleeding complications in the patients not on ibrutinib or any anticoagulant. The mechanism of increased bleeding from ibrutinib is drug-induced thrombocytopenia and decreased platelet function. Indeed, 69% of patients on ibrutinib with bleeding complications had platelets less than 150,000. Overall, this is an important study despite its small size and lack of statistical significance when comparing ibrutinib to anticoagulants, as it does show an increased risk of bleeding during Mohs in patients on ibrutinib. The authors recommend holding ibrutinib for three days before and after Mohs, as studies have not shown that such interruptions in therapy carry adverse outcomes, as well as checking platelet levels prior to surgery. It will be helpful to see larger scale studies on this topic in the future. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the communication, Academic Productivity of Successful Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Applications by Dr. Elias and Dr. Sharon. Micrographic surgery and dermatologic oncology fellowship is highly competitive with a match rate that ranges between 50 to 60% depending on the year. Previous research has found program directors highly value research productivity for fellowship selection criteria only behind interview impressions and letters of recommendation. Research may be a surrogate for work ethic, passion for dermatologic surgery, and potential academic success. The authors of this communication sought to quantify the amount and quality of research endeavors of successful fellowship candidates. The authors identified all fellows who completed an accredited MDSO fellowship between 2017 and 2021. PubMed, Scopus, and Google Scholar were used to analyze all peer-reviewed literature of each fellow. The following information was collected, including numbers of first author publications, the Hirsch index or H index, and total publications, which were further broken down into the type of publication, including original research, review articles, case reports, book chapters, and other miscellaneous research. The H index is a measure of productivity and citation impact. 543 Mohs Fellows were identified with 4,120 publications. The median H index was three and the median number of publications was six. Less than 10% of successful applicants had no publications. Almost half of all publications were first author pieces and about a third of publications were original research articles. The second most common type of publication were case reports. These results provide future applicants with information regarding research expectations for a success, successful match, and the authors suggest aiming for an H index of around three. It also really helps program directors compare applicants' academic productivity and to counsel mentees about the match process going forward. 
This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication severe post-operative bleeding secondary to abrutinib intake by authors Ana Yul Ramos and Noelia Izquierdo Erce. This is a case report of a 79-year-old male patient with CLL on ibrutinib who had Mohs on the cheek with a mustardi flap repair. 24 hours postoperatively, the patient presented to the emergency department for active bleeding and a large hematoma. Surgical intervention was performed and a drain was placed, and the patient received platelet transfusions as well as red blood cell transfusions later in the hospital stay, and it took one week for the bleeding to completely stop. This case report, as well as the three historical case reports summarized in the table in the discussion, are in line with the conclusions from Article 23 from this issue from Brian Jang's group, which was a retrospective review of bleeding events in CLL patients. Overall, ibrutinib is associated with increased bleeding due to its effects on platelet signaling and thrombocytopenia. The authors of this present paper agree with Dr. Jang's group that ibrutinib should be held three to seven days before and after Mohs surgery. They also note that it is preferable to delay surgery for three months after starting ibrutinib as bleeding events are highest in the first few months. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the communication topical hydrogen peroxide promotes secondary intention healing by first author Andrew Sawaju and senior author Kelly Harms. The authors of this article describe the utilization of topical hydrogen peroxide to promote tissue granulation and wound healing on large scalp wounds. They present two cases in which twice-daily application of over-the-counter hydrogen peroxide 3% solution followed by packing with xeroform or petrolatum-based mesh gauze containing 3% bismuth tribromophenate promoted granulation. It is well known that endogenous hydrogen peroxide is an important regulatory molecule molecule in natural tissue regeneration, and that its concentration varies depending on the phase of healing. The authors hypothesize that hydrogen peroxide stimulates the production of vascularized granulation tissue while also inhibiting re-epithelialization. Therefore, hydrogen peroxide should be discontinued when granulation reaches a desired depth to allow for epithelialization. Potential complications of hydrogen peroxide overuse include excessive granulation, pyogenic granuloma-like tissue production, or chronic wound development with delay of epithelialization. Overall, I was intrigued by this treatment and may try it for my patients with scalp wounds that fail to progress. Certainly, randomized controlled trials in larger patient groups are needed to assess whether this is truly an efficacious intervention. This segment of the episode features general dermatologic surgery and cosmetic article reviews. This is Megan McLean reviewing the original investigation, Treatment of Lentigenes, a systematic review by authors Ilya Mukovozov, Jordana Rosler, Nadia Kashetsky, and Allison Gregory. This investigation seeks to compare efficacy and adverse events for different treatment modalities of solar lentigenes. The authors performed a literature search using Medline, Embase, and PubMed. Their search returned 4,162 articles whose titles and abstracts were reviewed by two independent authors to determine if they met study criteria. This led to full-text review of 147 articles by three authors and finally to the inclusion of 48 articles in the review. Pooled analysis included 1,763 patients, 88% of whom were female. Lentigenes were located on the face, hands, and arms. 
Due to study heterogeneity, meta-analysis was not able to be performed, and results were presented narratively with outcomes analyzed into three categories of complete, partial, and no response. Combination therapies were evaluated in six studies and showed the highest rate of complete response at 65%. The combo therapy with highest clearance rate of 75% was a cream containing 2% 4-hydroxyanazone and 0.01% tretinoin combined with topical use of sunscreen. Other combination treatments studied are listed in the discussion section. Adverse events were reported in 39% of patients in this combo treatment group, causing 22 patients to stop treatment. Laser therapy was evaluated in 34 studies and had the second highest complete response rate at 43% and partial response rate in an additional 48% of patients. Adverse events were reported in 23% of patients, including hyper and hypopigmentation and textural change most frequently. Cryotherapy was previously recommended as first-line therapy for lentigenes in 2006 by a consensus from the Pigmentary Disorders Academy. Seven studies on cryotherapy were included in this review with a 14% complete and 62% partial response rate in adverse events in 32% of patients. Adverse events included pigmentary alterations and skin atrophy most frequently. Topical retinoids were evaluated in two studies and showed complete and partial response in 21 and 45% of patients respectively. 82% of patients experienced adverse events including moderate erythema and scaling. Peels were evaluated in six studies with complete response in only 6% of patients and partial response in 58%. Adverse events were seen in 19% and included pigmentary changes, erythema, and pain during treatment. Two other studies evaluated topical plant hydroquinone glucosides or undecalinol phenylalanine and showed partial response in 100% of patients in both of these studies. In summary, this review suggests that combination therapies and laser modalities have the highest response rates in the treatments of solar lentigenes with lasers showing lower reported adverse events. This study is limited by the considerable heterogeneity among studies, pooling of different treatment options into generalized groups, and the potential for publication bias reporting positive outcomes. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the original article, Gender Disparities and Reimbursement Among Dermatologists and Dermatologic Surgeons by first author Sonia Bala and senior author Dr. Feroz. Literature shows there is a pay gap between male and female physicians across a number of specialties, even when controlling for other factors. Previous studies have suggested a pay gap pay gap along gender lines within dermatology, but these studies were limited to an academic setting and did not differentiate between general dermatologists and dermatologic surgeons. The authors performed a cross-sectional self-reported survey to determine if a difference exists between male and female general dermatologists and compare those differences with dermatologic surgeons. Approximately 20% of members of the AAD were surveyed, and 397 surveys were completed, which included a total of 252 general dermatologists, of which 119 were male and 133 were female, and 66 dermatologic surgeons, of which 34 were male and 32 were female. The survey asked questions related to total annual income, demographics, current employment, and time spent providing patient care. A logarithmic regression model was used to analyze income and the effect of different variables. 
The authors found that male general dermatologists are more are 2.46 times more likely than female general dermatologists to be in a higher income category. There's no significant difference in income amongst dermatologic surgeons, and this observation calls into question whether primarily procedural-based reimbursement models are less susceptible to gender bias. Gender variations have been studied in other surgical subspecialties and do vary by specialty. Interestingly, there was a gender disparity in academic ranking between male and female dermatologic surgeons, with female dermatologic surgeons comprising a higher proportion of low-ranking academic positions. However, the true meaning of this is unclear given the small sample size. However, previous studies have shown when equal opportunities for career goals and academic achievement exist, women receive fewer awards and grants, are cited less, compensated less for speaking engagements, and have their research regarded as less valuable than than that produced by men. One major limitation of the study is that all data was self-reported and may be there may be participation bias with overrepresentation of respondents who are either extremely satisfied or dissatisfied with their current reimbursement. Additionally, larger scale studies are necessary to really assess differences between dermatologic subspecialties and whether there is any sort of pay gap between race and ethnicity as well. This is Ardalan Minukede discussing the article Efficacy and Safety of Low Fluence NDAG Laser Treatment in Melasma a meta-analysis and systematic review. The premise of this article is based on how NDAG lasers are widely used for treating melasma. The authors describe the concept of laser toning, which is low-fluence multi-session laser therapy. The authors did a wide search through multiple databases, including PubMed, Wave of Science, Embase, and the Cochrane Library of Databases up until December 2020, and found 50 studies where they looked for efficacy of this treatment, and 66 studies were identified to review complications. The results looked at melasma severity scores for laser toning as monotherapy versus combination and found that combination therapy was more efficacious and that efficacy tends to diminish with time, indicating a need for maintenance treatments. Adverse events did include post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and recurrence, but namely modeled hypopigmentation or punctate leukoderma as major complications were highlighted. This is thought to be due to either direct phototoxicity or a total cumulative dose of the laser. The analysis supports the hypothesis that is due to a cumulative dose because hypopigmentation and punctate leukoderma is correlated with the number of sessions in the study. The authors do highlight that this is the first study to analyze the correlation between hypopigmentation and the number of treatment sessions. Future studies are needed to investigate the optimal treatment protocols to minimize this risk. Now, the authors do again highlight difficulties with the analyses, noting significant heterogeneity in the studies reviewed, and lack of specific details, including treatment protocols and absence of certain laser settings in the manuscripts they reviewed. This is Isabella Jones reviewing a study evaluating the efficacy and safety of intense post-light and non-ablative fractional 1440 nanometer diode laser to a combination of of the two modalities for facial rejuvenation by Al Mukhtar and Fabi. In this study, 40 subjects with mild to moderate facial photo damage were randomized into one of two groups. Group A received IPL to one side of the face and the combination of the IPL followed by the 1440 diode to the other side. 
B received the 1440 diode alone on one side and the combination on the other side of the face. Patients received two treatments 30 days apart and were followed for a total of 120 days. All subjects had skin types 2 or 3. The IPL alone, the 1440 diode alone, and the combination of the two all led to statistically significant improvements in pigmentation, redness telangiectasia scores, and the blinded investigator global aesthetic improvement score. In the intergroup analysis, the IPL alone or the combination treatment showed more improvement in pigmentation compared to the 1440 diode alone. Only the 1440 diode or the combination treatment led to significant improvements in wrinkling. And overall, satisfaction was higher in the combination group. In their discussion, the authors point out that the improvements in pigmentation, wrinkling, and erythema were expected for the mechanism of action of the different lasers. They point out that the improvement in erythema seen with the 1440 diode may be due to collagen production supporting blood vessels, as prior studies have also shown that non-ablative lasers may help with erythema. Overall, the authors point out that the combination treatment had a higher patient satisfaction and was safe to perform together. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing spot reduction of localized fat deposits on the lateral thighs by simultaneous emission of synchronized radiofrequency and high fem energy magnetic resonance multicenter study by first author Melanie Palm, last author Richard Goldfarb. So lateral thigh adiposity or saddlebags are a common concern in women. The goal of this study was to investigate the combination of high-intensity focused ultrasound or HIFEM and radiofrequency energy for the treatment of lateral thigh fat. This was a multi-center open-label study. The device investigated was the M-Sculpt Neo. Patients underwent a total of four weekly 30-minute high-fem and radiofrequency procedures on the lateral thighs. Most patients reached a 80 to 100% intensity on the high-fem. For measurements, MRI was performed of the lateral thighs at baseline and at each follow-up visit, as well as lateral thigh circumference measurement. A total of 93 female subjects were enrolled with a mean BMI of 26, though there was a high withdrawal rate. MRI measurements showed significant reduction of subcutaneous fat thickness on the lateral thighs that was reduced by an average of 30% at month three and 28% by six months post-treatment. Mean thigh circumference reduction was 1.6 centimeters. No serious adverse events were reported and there was a high subject satisfaction scores. So overall, the HIFEM and radiofrequency treatment was safe and efficacious, and there was a maintained improvement over six months of an average reduction of 28% in fat via MRI studies. And it was impressive that MRI studies were performed. The authors hypothesize that the HIFEM addresses the loss of muscle tone in this lateral thigh area, while the radiofrequency reduces the adiposity and that they work synergistically. The limitations of this study were the high rate of subject discontinuation due to the COVID pandemic 
and the lack of control. This is Megan McLean reviewing the original investigation, non-invasive hands-free bipolar radiofrequency facial remodeling device for the improvement of skin appearance by Jessica Labati, Sunil Chilakuri, Joel Cohen, Suzanne Kilmer, Mary Lupo, Rod Rorick, and Jeffrey Dover. In recent years, RF devices have emerged as popular treatments for delivering modest improvement in skin tightening. However, treatments can be time-consuming and onerous, leading to operator fatigue. The authors sought to assess a non-invasive RF device manufactured by InMode, which can be secured to a patient's face, ensuring an automatic, hands-free treatment. The protocol includes skin temperature measurement to ensure consistent, accurate, and safe treatment. Hand pieces can be applied to cheek and chin areas, with treatment of both areas taking about 75 minutes total. In this prospective multi-center trial, 87 patients were enrolled to receive three treatments two weeks apart to the chin and cheeks. Please see methods for inclusion and exclusion criteria. Follow-up was performed at one, three, and six months with photographs. The average patient was set age was 54, and 97% of patients were female. Skin types 1 through 5 were represented. The primary outcome of the study was met with 85.9% of blinded investigators correctly able to identify the before image for 64 patients who were evaluated. This was significantly higher than the 70% benchmark that had been hypothesized prior to the study's start. Of note, only 64 of 87 patients were included in this primary outcome analysis because 23 patients had missing photos due to technology issues. Patients reported minimal pain during treatments, less than 2 on a scale of 0 to 10, and reported pain was noted to decrease with, with each subsequent visit. Investigators assessed level of patient improvement on a scale of 0 to 4 at each follow-up. At six months, they determined 83% of patients to have any degree of improvement, with a median improvement score of 2. Additional information about scoring is included in the supplemental digital content. In comparison, 74% of patients believed that they had any level of improvement at six months, with a median score of 2 as well. 59% of patients were satisfied or very satisfied with their treatment at six months. The first four consented subjects underwent pre- and post-treatment biopsies in treated areas. All samples demonstrated an increase in either collagen or elastic fibers in the papillary and upper reticular dermis and loss of reedy pegs in the superficial dermis. No dermal scarring was noted. Six subjects reported adverse events, which were mild and short-lived and include one report of erythema for two days, one report of mild post-procedure tenderness, one report of hypopigmentation, and three reports of epidermal changes consistent with superficial burns. All adverse events resolved by the final study date. Limitations of the study include small sample size, absence of follow-up photos in 23 patients, and the subjective scoring and assessment measurements used. The authors are aware of other studies with more objective measurements, which are currently underway. Additionally, the loss of reedy pigs on histology is unexpected and warrants additional investigation into the mechanism and significance of this finding. In summary, this hands-free bipolar radiofrequency device appears to be modestly effective and safe for improvement in overall skin appearance, with about 59% of patients expressing satisfaction at six-month follow-up. Additional studies are needed to more objectively assess the degree of improvement from this device. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing treatment of upper facial lines with daxybotulinum toxin A for injection results from an open-label phase 2 study. 
by first author Jeff Dover and lead author Dominica Vitarella. Daxybotulinum toxin is differentiated from other neuromodulators by its formulation, which includes a 150 kilodalton core neurotoxin and RTP-004, which is a proprietary stabilizing peptide and allows the product to be formulated without accessory proteins and without human serum albumin. This was a multi-center, open-label, single-arm phase two study at eight sites in the U.S. and Canada, in which patients were enrolled and treated with 40 units of daxybotulinum toxin into their glabella, 32 units into their forehead, and 48 units total into both crow's feet. There were 45 patients who completed this study. They were mostly female, white, mean age of 48. Two-thirds of them had had prior treatments in the past with other neuromodulators. The primary endpoint was to achieve none or mild at week four in each of the three areas. And this was well met in 96, 96, and 92% of people by investigator grading, respectively in glabella, forehead, and lateral canthal lines, and by 88, 81, and 77% in patient grading in each of the three areas, respectively. And they did a nice composite, which when you look at all three areas together, achieving non or mild was achieved by 88% of patients in the investigator's ratings and 71% in patient ratings. You can refer to the tables because there is a lot of data. Patient satisfaction was high. At week 16, two-thirds of patients were satisfied. And at week 28, 50% of patients were satisfied. Meantime, to the loss of none or mild, which is pretty clinically relevant, I find, is between 24 and 28 weeks in the study, and to return to baseline was between 33 and 35 weeks. Safety was good. 10 patients had 26 mild treatment, emergent adverse events, including erythema, discomfort, and headache. There were zero cases of either brow or lid ptosis. There was one SAE, which was COVID pneumonia and unrelated to the study. The authors point out two important things in their discussion. One is they remind us that the extended duration of Daxi has to do with their highly positively charged peptide, which forms a strong electrostatic bond with the negatively charged core neurotoxin. And they remind us that Daxi can be formulated without human serum albumin and is stable at room temperature before reconstitution. They do a nice job of reviewing their forehead line data that they have from other studies and point out that Daxi doses of 18 and 24 units in the forehead do a nice job of balancing duration of effects while preserving some movement if you want to see more movement in your patients. So in conclusion, Daxibotulinum toxin had a high degree of efficacy, safety, and extended duration in all three areas that is fairly real world for us day to day. This was an open label study with no comparator group. Some of the visits were performed remotely because it took place during the coronavirus pandemic. So this was a nicely written paper and I encourage you to read it. My name is Curran Lal and I will be reviewing trichloroacetic acid, also known as TCA, with microneedling versus TCA alone for the treating melasma by first author Iman Hafni out of Egypt. The authors evaluated the efficacy and safety of combined microneedling with TCA in the treatment of melasma. Melasma is a very common condition in medium skin tone females and males. Chemical peels are considered the first-line treatment of melasma.
Microneedling is often used as a form of drug delivery. 40 patients are randomized into two groups, Group A, where patients received 8 TCA 25% peels at bimonthly intervals in addition to microneedling every month for four sessions, or Group B, where they just received bimonthly chemical peels for a total of eight sessions. Patients are mostly skin types 3 and 4. For Group A, chemical peel was applied for 10 minutes after microneedling with a 36-pin 2-millimeter depth microneedle with four passes. In Group A, TCA 25% one pass was performed, whereas in Group B, one to three passes were performed until uniform frosting was noted. Patients were not allowed to use bleaching creams in between sessions. Photographs were taken at baseline one month and three months post-treatment. Two blinded dermatologists performed MOZI, modified MOZI, and melasma severity index scores. After one and three months of treatment, there was significant improvement in the MOZI, modified MOZI, and the melasma severity index in both groups. However, the mean percentage of change from baseline was significantly higher in the combination group with microneedling and chemical peels. Major side effects included folliculitis in one patient in group A, in one case of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation in the chemical peel only group. While group B was the standard, group A did not get more than one passive TCA, which to me serves as a limitation. My takeaway, combining microneedling with regular chemical peels with TCA 25% is more effective than chemical peeling alone for melasma. This is definitely not something I would recommend novices performed given the endpoints of TCA, which can be difficult to see after microneedling. I wonder if it's safer to peel first and then microneedle with lower settings due to the improved keratinocyte discohesivity. My name is Curran Lal, and I will be reviewing quantitative and qualitative analysis of skin of color images in dermatologic surgery literature from 2019 to 2022 by first author Carrie Diamond out of Duke University. As we know, there is a paucity of skin of color images in the dermatologic surgery literature. This group aimed to quantify representation of skin of color in dermatologic surgery journal from 2019 to 2022. They classified skin of color if images were of skin types 4 and above. Of the 720 articles containing images, 19% had skin of color representation. Only 2 out of the 78 articles were in reconstructive conundrum, which contained skin of color representation. Most of these images came from articles discussing disorders of pigmentation. The biggest limitation of this study was that it limited its search to one journal. This journal is primarily a surgical journal with a focus on Mohs surgery and non-melanoma skin cancers, as we know, are uncommon in skin of color patients. My takeaway, we should remind ourselves and our colleagues about cases that may be common to fairer skin types and try to publish more of these types of cases in skin of color patients. For example, if you're someone who practices most surgery in primarily a black community, it may be perfunctory for you to perform these cases, but may not be perfunctory for us. And so it would be helpful if you could publish these cases so that we can learn about the technique and see more skin of color representation in the dermatologic surgery literature. This is Isabella Jones reviewing refractory granuloma annulari treated with the 1550 nanometer erbium doped non-ablative laser and 595 nanometer pulse dye laser by Breen and Haas. The authors briefly reviewed the current medical options for the treatment of GA and mentioned that the literature on the use of lasers for GA is limited. In this study, a 71-year-old male with GA had failed topical and intralesional steroids, dapsone, montelukast, extramural laser, niacinamide, aspirin, and puva. The lesions on his left hand were treated with PDL alone, the 1550 erbium dope laser alone, or a combination of the two lasers over three sessions, one to two months apart. 
the authors include the settings used in the manuscript. The lesions became less red with the PDL alone, and flatter with the 1550 nanometer alone. The combination treatment was most effective, with approximately 75% improvement in texture and color noted one month after the third and final treatment. The authors note that this combination has shown success before for burn scars, surgical hypertrophic scars, acne, and lupus perineal and sarcoidosis, and state there is still very little literature on the use of this for recalcitrant GA. They encourage further studies on this topic with longer follow-up times. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing lip fillers, a cross-sectional analysis of Instagram trends by first author Jamie Karch and lead author Neelan Vashi. In this cross-sectional observational study, the authors looked at Instagram posts over a seven-day period, interestingly, the beginning of the pandemic, March 26th to April 1st, 2020, and over those seven days, they looked for the top nine posts that used the hashtags lip filler or lip filler before and after, and they analyzed those 47 unique posts that were posted over those seven days. They point out that none of the post's authors were board-certified dermatologists or plastic surgeons, that most of the posts had aesthetic claims and advertised clinical or professional services and were done in a professional office setting. As far as demographics, there was a high majority of lighter skin types, one through three, in 80 to 90 percent of these posts, and that the top-to-bottom lip ratio, interestingly, was 1 to 1.15 as compared to what we've traditionally been taught of 1 to 1.6 as the golden ratio. And the discussion is interesting on this paper, and they talk about social media influence and how the absence of posts authored by licensed dermatologists or plastic surgeons and the lack of research and unsubstantiated claims may lead to an increase in side effects. They point out that there, of course, was a gap, at least in these posts, in representation of darker skin types. And then they get into sort of an interesting theory called perceptual adaptiveness, which is when if you view a distorted image over and over again, you may start to believe that that is more attractive than what is normal. And so they really conclude by saying when we're counseling our patients, we need to understand that Instagram and filters may be contributing to unrealistic delineations of beauty, and that may lead to unfulfilled expectations and dissatisfied patients. So we want to be sure we're addressing these in our consultations. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing non-healing nodule over the temporal hairline, Beware the Threadlift Granuloma, by first author Dr. Toe and last author Dr. Chang. Thread lifting has gained popularity in recent years with non-absorbable and the more popular absorbable PDO threads. While most adverse events of thread lifting are minor, such as bruising and facial asymmetry, the author reported two cases of thread lift granuloma that presented as persistent temporal hairline nodules. Both patients had a one to two year history of poorly healing erythematous nodules on the hairline. They were then biopsied and both showed foreign body granuloma. The patients had then brought up that they had thread lifts two to three years ago. Treatment was excision of the lesion with a suture. So the temporal area is a common area for anchoring of these thread lifts 
and it explains the location. The possible granuloma complication is an important thing for clinicians to be aware of, and the treatment of this is excision of the nodule and remaining suture, and also treatment of any secondary infections. Welcome to Beyond the Digest, offering bonus content covering surgical articles in dermatologic literature outside the peer-reviewed journal, Dermatologic Surgery. Reference the episode description for publication details of the content covered. My name is Amy Green, and I will be reviewing the research letter entitled Value of Permanent Pathology for D-Bulk and Mohs Specimens During Mohs Micrographic Surgery for Cutaneous Squamous Cell Carcinoma, a retrospective cohort study by Michael Nema and senior author Dr. Rajiv Najawan out of UT Southwestern. So the study was done with the understanding that preoperative biopsies of squamous cell carcinoma often only partially sample the lesion, and high-risk features such as deep invasion, large-caliber nerve invasion, and poor differentiation increase risk of metastasis and local recurrence for these tumors. Although Mohs evaluates 100% of the margins, the central debulk is not routinely evaluated for additional risk factors. At this institution, when there is concern for upstaging at Mohs presentation, the central debulk is sent for permanent pathologic evaluation. And so this is a retrospective study looking at a rate, the rate of upstaging in these specific cases. 78 tumors on the head and neck that had permanent debulk specimens at UT Southwestern between 2015 and 2020 were included in the study. I will refer you to Supplemental Table 1 for full demographic information, but did want to note that 24% of patients had a transplant, with the majority being lung transplant, and 64.5% of the tumors were greater than or equal to 2 centimeters. A total of 47 or 60% of the specimens were upstaged. 29 of 47 were upstaged by Mohs frozen sections, but not on debulk analysis. 14 of 47 were upstaged by debulk analysis, but not Mohs sections. And four of 47 were upstaged on both Mohs sections as well as the permanent debulk analysis. Debulk analysis, therefore, may reveal upstaging 18% of the time, independent of Mohs sections, based on this review. Upstaged tumors were more likely to have perineural invasion, or large-caliber perineural invasion, which was statistically significant, and they were more likely to be referred for adjuvant radiation therapy. The study did note that another recent publication out of Ohio State showed the rate of upstaging with squamous cell carcinoma debulk evaluation to be 1.4 to 2%. They postulated that the larger percentage of upstaging for their cohort may have to do with the larger number of transplant recipients, the larger lesion size included, and the higher ultraviolet exposure in Texas. This study does suggest that in a subset of high-risk patients where there is clinical concern for upstaging at presentation, that permanent debulk evaluation at the time of surgery may provide additional valuable information that may change post-operative care. This is Yassel Kim reviewing the original study, Immune Status Does Not Independently Influence Cutaneous Squamous Cell Carcinoma Metastasis and Death When Stratified by Tumor Stage, a dual-center retrospective cohort analysis of primary Enzera disease by first author Daniel O'Connor and senior author Emily Ruiz in December's JAD. As we all know, the risk of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in immunosuppressed individuals is higher than the risk in the general population. 
Furthermore, several studies have found that immunosuppressed individuals with SCCs develop more aggressive tumors, including increased rates of deep tissue spread, perineural invasion, lymphatic invasion, and poorly differentiated tumors. Tumors in the immunosuppressed is also associated with more poor outcomes. However, it remains unknown whether immunosuppression constitutes an independent risk factor for poor outcomes. Therefore, the study aims to compare SEC outcomes in immunocompromised and immunocompetent individuals when controlling for tumor stage using a large dual-centered cohort of primary tumors. Patients with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma diagnosed at the Brigham and Women's and the Cleveland Clinic between 2010 and 2016 were identified. EMRs were reviewed for presence and type of immunosuppression, treatment, as well as outcomes of interest including local recurrence, metastasis, disease-specific death, and overall survival. The primary outcome measure was a composite of metastasis and disease-specific death. A total of 1989 tumors from 814 immunocompromised patients and 6,608 tumors from 4,198 immunocompetent patients were included in this study. The most common causes of immunosuppression were organ transplantation, immunosuppressive medications for inflammatory diseases, and CLL. About 55% of the tumors were treated with MOS, 33% with surgical excision, and 12% with other primary treatments. The immunocompromised group had significantly more high-risk features, including tumor diameter, depth of invasion, histological differentiation, and perineural invasion. Altogether, the immunocompromised group had 53.1% more high T-stage tumors. Of the 103 tumors with local recurrence, 64 were from the immunocompetent patients and 39 were from the immunosuppressed patients. Multivariable analysis showed that immunosuppression had a significant effect on local recurrence when adjusting for T-stage, though this effect was lessened when limiting to high T-stage tumors and was present in only one of the two centers. Immunosuppression status did not affect metastasis, disease-specific death, or a composite of these poor outcomes. This finding did not differ for tumors from solid organ transplant recipients or patients with CLL. Significant predictors of poor outcomes included Brigham and Women's tumor stage and uh, male sex. This study shows that immunosuppression was not an independent risk factor for metastasis or disease-specific death when adjusting for tumor stage. However, the immunosuppressed group had approximately 50, time, 50 times more high T-stage tumors and one and a half times more tumors irrespective of stage. Male gender remained a significant predictor of disease-specific death and metastasis. Although immunosuppression itself may not contribute to worse outcomes up for primary cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas, these patients develop more squames, which is associated with a greater risk of developing a poor outcome. Limitations of the study include the retrospective nature of the study. Some outcomes may not have been captured in the institution's medical records, although the average follow-up time in both cohorts was more than three years. And this analysis does not account for differences in immunosuppressive regimens or just inherent differences in immune status. 
I think it would be interesting to see how treatment with immunotherapy and the immunocompetent and immunocompromised may affect long-term outcomes. In conclusion, immunosuppressed individuals develop 50% more high T-stage tumors, and after adjusting for tumor stage, immunosuppression did not increase the risk of metastases and disease-specific death. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the article, Prognostic Impact of Breslau Thickness and Equal Melanoma, a Retrospective Analysis, by senior author Dr. Liu C. Acral melanoma originates on the palms of the hands, soles of the feet, and nail beds, and exhibits distinct demographic, clinical, and genetic profiles, compared with melanomas arising from other cutaneous sites. Evidence suggests it has a worse prognosis than other cutaneous melanomas. However, evidence for the prognostic importance of tumor thickness in acral melanoma is limited. In this article, authors assess the prognostic impact of Breslau thickness in patients with acromelanoma. Specifically, they aim to verify the tumor thickness categories utilized by the current 8th edition of AGCC melanoma staging system in patients with clinical and or pathologic and category negative melanoma. This was a multi-center retrospective study incorporating data from six large tertiary hospitals in China, involving patients diagnosed with localized acromelanoma between January 1, 2000 and December 31, 2017. Melanoma-specific survival in different tumor thickness strata T1 through T4 was estimated by the Kaplan-Meier method. A total of 853 patients with clinical N0 acromelanoma were included. The median follow-up time up was 60 months. The median melanoma-specific survival in patients with T1 through T4 disease varied significantly among patients in T1 through T3 subtypes of acral melanoma. However, there was no significant difference between T3 and T4 acral melanoma. Six subgroup analyses confirmed that survival outcomes were similar between different subgroups with different tumor thickness greater than 2 millimeters. In conclusion, this large population study demonstrated that Breslau thickness does have prognostic impact in patients with localized acromelanoma. However, there was no association between tumor thickness and survival in patients with a Breslau thickness greater than 2 millimeters. These, clini- these findings may help clinicians to stratify patients more accurately based on Breslau thickness and ulceration status and thus to develop more precise treatment plans. The results may also have implications for the management options of adjuvant immunotherapy in the future, which is especially important as the incidence of melanoma is steadily increasing worldwide. This is Yasul Kim reviewing the article Desmoplastic Melanoma Treated with Y-Local Excision or Mohs Micrographic Surgery, Rates of Positive Margins, Local Recurrence, and Repeat Surgeries by first author Nina Ran and senior author Chris Miller in December's JAD. This study examined the surgical outcomes of desmoplastic melanomas treated with Y-Local Excision or Mohs Micrographic Surgery in the largest published cohort of desmoplastic melanomas treated with Mohs. The institutional pathology databases were screened for AGCC stage 1 or 2 desmoplastic melanomas excised using Y-local excision or MOS from 2005 to 2020. 
The outcomes that were evaluated included positive or equivocal microscopic margins detected using permanent section analysis following reconstruction, local recurrence defined as a regrowth of desmoplastic melanoma contiguous with the scar, and repeat excisions because of positive or equivocal margins or local recurrence. 109 desmoplastic melanomas were identified, 63 were treated with Y-local excision and 46 with Mohs. The Y-local excision cohort had younger patients and fewer specialty site desmoplastic melanomas, however other characteristics were similar. The Y-local excision treated desmoplastic melanomas were more often closed with simple reconstruction and had longer follow-up times than those treated with Mohs. Among the desmoplastic melanomas treated with Y-local excision, positive or equivocal margins were detected after recon in 13% of all cases and 21% of specialty site locations. Local recurrence after Y-local excision was 8% for all cases and 11% for specialty site melanomas. Overall, 11% of patients required at least one repeat surgery due to positive or equivocal margins after Y-local excision, development of local recurrence, or both. Among desmoplastic melanomas treated with Mohs, no local recurrences were detected. Within this group, 41% had final margins sent for permanent section analysis. One patient underwent reconstruction after clear Mohs margins were interpreted on frozen section. However, residual desmoplastic melanoma was detected on permanent sections of a thawed margin. This patient underwent wide local excision thereafter. Limitations of this study is the retrospective nature of the study. It's a single institution design. There is a low number of desmoplastic melanomas and some of the patients had a short follow-up length. For instance, the Mohs group had a shorter mean follow-up period than those in the wide local excision group. So this study could have underestimated the local recurrence rate. Therefore, in this study's cohort, desmoplastic melanomas treated with Y-local excision had higher rates of positive or equivocal margins and local recurrence resulting in repeat surgeries as opposed to Mohs. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the article, Assessing Rates of Compliance with National Guidelines Regarding Sentinel Lymph Node Biopsy for Invasive Melanomas Treated with Mohs Surgery by senior author Dr. John A. Carucci. Mohs surgery is increasingly used for the treatment of in situ and invasive cutaneous melanoma. One potential drawback for the use of Mohs surgery for melanoma is the coordination required to perform sentinel lymph node biopsy with another subspecialty before excision, which is currently recommended by National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines based on the tumor stage. Compliance with NCCN sentinel lymph node guidelines for invasive melanomas treated with Mohs surgery nationally is presently unknown. In this study, authors evaluated the rate of performance for sentinel lymph node biopsy of invasive melanomas treated with Mohs surgery on the basis of NCCN recommendations across the United States using data from the National Cancer Database. In a cohort of 7,096 cases, approximately 50% of Mohs surgery cases that were recommended to, quote, discuss and offer sentinel lymph node biopsy, end quote, underwent the procedure compared with 38.5% of cases that were recommended to discuss and consider sentinel lymph node biopsy, 
and 4.3% of cases for which sentinel lymph node biopsy was not recommended. Of note, 31.8% of patients with sentinel lymph node positivity ultimately underwent immunotherapy. Interestingly, the proportion of patients with sentinel lymph nodes undergoing immunotherapy has increased in recent years. While the data is limited by the fact that community-based dermatology practices are not included in the, in the National Cancer Database, this data suggests that sentinel lymph node biopsy is performed as recommended by NCCN guidelines for approximately 50% of invasive melanomas treated with Mohs surgery across the nation. This suggests that coordination with sentinel lymph node biopsy with Mohs surgery is feasible and is done in many cases. Although it does also highlight a gap in the sentinel lymph node biopsy performance compared with cases treated with traditional wide local excision. As Mohs surgery is becoming increasingly utilized to treat the primary tumor of cutaneous melanoma, it will be important to ensure adequate staging of these cases persists. Thank you for listening to Derm Surgery Digest, the official podcast of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. To access these featured articles, author videos, and much more, visit journals.lww.com slash dermatologic surgery. To learn more about the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, visit asds.net. My name is Amy Green, and I will pre be presenting the research article entitled A Cohort Study to Determine Factors Associated with Upstaging Cutaneous Squamous Cell Carcinoma During Mohs Surgery by Dr. Canavan, Arda, Seelan, and, and senior author Dr. Mary Stevenson out of NYU. Although the majority of cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas have excellent outcomes, there are a subset of these tumors that have increased risk of poor outcomes, including recurrence, metastasis, and death. So this was an institutional cross-sectional cohort study looking at upstage, upstaging frequency during Mohs surgery using the AJCC8 and Brigham and Women's staging systems. The complete inclusion criteria and statistical analysis can be viewed in the supplemental materials. Of note, tumors were included if, the, included if they were primary squamous cell carcinomas and treated with Mohs surgery. Patients were considered immunosuppressed if they had leukemia, lymphoma, monoclonal gammopathy, solid organ transplantation, or HIV and AIDS. 374 patients with cutaneous squamous cell or 374 cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas were included, and about 25% of those tumors were upstaged during Mohs surgery using the Brigham and Women's staging system, and 23% using the AJCC8, which can be seen in Table One. All of the tumors that were upstaged were upstaged by one stage, and the upstaged tumors had a lower pre-Mohs surgery tumor stage on average compared to the non-upstaged tumors. Increased tumor size was significantly associated with the upstaged tumors. The upstage tumors required more, most uh, stages to clear, and deep invasion and perineural invasion tracked consistently with the upstage tumors using the Brigham and Women system, but only reached statistical significance for poor differentiation. More complete tumor and treatment characteristics in patients with and without uh, upstaging can be seen in Table 2. Immunosuppressed tumor or immuno patients who were immunosuppressed were 
1.9-fold more likely with the Brigham and Women and 1.57-fold more likely with the AJCC8 to be upstaged, although this only reached statistical significance with the Brigham and Women staging system. Upstaged tumors were also more likely to be located on the scalp. So this study does suggest that for cutaneous squamous cell, particularly on the face and scalp, that more complete staging is required with complete tumor extirpation using Mohs surgery, since a good proportion of these tumors will be upstaged, which could alter adjuvant treatment. Limitations of the study include a small sample size, a single institution, and the lack of bread loafing of extirpated tumors. This is Megan McLean reviewing the original investigation, Surgical Subcision for Acne Scars, a review of instrumentation by Yolanka Lobo and David Lim. Subcision is a minimally invasive technique to elevate skin depressions first described in 1995. It treats rolling acne scars by severing the fibrous band that tethers the scar to the subcutaneous tissue. Improvement after subcision is reported to range from 10 to 100%. The authors performed a lit review of articles describing subcision alone for acne scarring. They identified 17 articles with 417 patients using either sharp, blunt, or energy-assisted subcision and found all were effective in treating acne scars. More details can be found in the supplemental digital content. The authors then provide a review of available subcision tools, as well as their advantages, disadvantages, and a rating of up to five stars based on the author's personal experience. Sharp instruments include hypodermic needles, no-core needles, cataract blades, dovetail cannulas, and the Taylor Liberator. In general, sharp instruments require less force to transect fibrotic tissue, but are associated with more complications including pain, bruising, nodules, bleeding, and hematoma. Other factors to consider are the length of the instrument as shorter devices require multiple entry points and may increase the likelihood of iatrogenic scars. The rigidity of the instrument also dictates whether it can withstand the force needed to shear scar bands, while flexibility can allow for more tactile feedback and account for the natural curvature of the face. Blunt instruments include traditional cannulas, U-tip cannulas, and blunt blades, which can be either smooth or notched. In general, blunt cannulas may offer good results with less risk of bleeding hematoma or other neurovascular injury. They can be used to simultaneously deliver anesthesia, fillers, nanofat, or other blood-derived products. However, due to the blunt tip, significant force may be necessary in areas of severe fibrosis. Energy-assisted devices employ radio frequency or diode laser to assist with separating the fibrous bands. This may lead to more controlled cutting with less collateral damage and may provide coagulation and thus less bleeding complications. Edema may be seen more commonly and burn scars at entry points have been reported. The three devices receiving either five or four star ratings include the stripping dovetail cannulas, the Taylor Liberator, and blunt dissection cannulas. In summary, this article provides an excellent overview of available subcision instruments and can be a resource for dermatologic surgeons hoping to add this technique to their practice. This is Megan McLean reviewing the communication Supraorbital Edema as a Predictor of Eyelid Edema Following Neurotoxin Administration by Patricia Ritchie, Matthew Avram, Danielle Solish, Sebastian Codafana, and Molly Wanner. Eyelid edema is a rare complication of neuromodulator treatment occurring at a rate less than 0.4%. The authors posit that it may be possible to predict patients who will experience this complication with a simple pretreatment maneuver. They detailed two cases of otherwise healthy women who experienced periorbital edema after treatment of the glabella, forehead, and periorbital region. Prior to treatment, 
both women displayed pitting edema of the lateral supraorbital region when pressure was applied with a cotton-tipped applicator. The theorized mechanism of edema is due to impaired lymphatic return, which also can contribute to baseline eyelid edema. The impaired return may be attributed to weakness of the orbicularis oculi muscle, which is crucial in promoting lymphatic outflow through its muscular contractions. Additional weakening of the muscle with neurotoxin may further impair lymphatic outflow and aggravate pre-existing edema. It is notable that this is a different mechanism than that of the more commonly encountered complication of eyelid ptosis, which is attributed to relaxation of the levator palpebri superioris muscle. The authors have been able to prevent the development of this edema in patients who fail their pretreatment test of cotton-tipped applicator by using lower doses in the periorbital region and treating the forehead on a separate visit than the glabella and periorbital region two weeks after treatment. In summary, patients with pre-existing pitting edema of the lateral supraorbital region may be at higher risk for developing periorbital edema after neuromodulator treatment and may warrant adjustment to neuromodulator injection technique.